depression. You see, the doctors, it only came because we had Cliff Barton. That's at Cliff Barton 4. That's at C-L-I-F-F-B-A-R-T-O-N 4. Numeral 4. No spaces, no underscores. On Twitter, not to be confused with Clint Barton. I believe that's Hawkeye from the Avengers name. Uh, Cliff, I love you, man. He's a great follow. Prolific tweeter, fellow Steve Martin fanatic. Steve Martin is one of my all-time heroes. In case you didn't know, The Jerk. That's my favorite movie of all time. And he's a great, funny writer, Mr. Cliff Barton. Very prolific on the tweeters. I think I already said that. One of his favorite pastimes seems to be poking at sensitive white people. uh, And that can be very fun to watch unfold. It's entertaining to me. I never met Cliff in person or even seen his face, but I can tell he's a wonderful person with a soul full of love and compassion. So go ahead and follow him at CliffBarton4. Uh, Cliff, consider yourself called the Frick Out. Uh, maybe we should put a sound effect. My name is Haas Bossman, and this is Breadsheet. Today, we have the rest of the interview with Ben Burgess. This is going to be a short intro, I promise. It's going to be less than 15 minutes. Speaking of wonderful people with souls full of love, however, I must unfortunately shout out two people. I've got two RIPs to share this week, sadly. First, quickly, uh, the great anarchist anthropologist and author David Graeber passed away a few days ago. I've only read one of his books, Bullshit Jobs. I only recently kind of learned about him, and that's a bummer that he passed away. So shortly after I learned of his work, Uh, but that book is a fantastic illustration of how absurd our economic system and modern lifestyles are. Basically about the idea that as production and efficiency have increased, we've continued to work ourselves to death, creating a wide variety of jobs that are not only unpleasant and unfulfilling, but also completely pointless Capitalism sucks, and a lot of his work seems to be about that, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of his work, but I'm not so happy about what's motivated me to do so. Uh, Rest in peace, rest in power, David Graeber. Now, the second rest in power is a personal one. I wasn't sure if I should bring this up on the show, and I'm still not certain it's the best idea, but it feels wrong not to acknowledge it. And my friend Trent passed away. Uh, It's the oldest and closest friend I've ever lost. He was just an amazing person, and uh, he had some some music, some instrumental music and stuff that he made, and just other stuff that I'm going to play for you in a little bit. Um, Just, you know, a little send-off for a guy I knew for over 20 years, you know, most of my life. He was just one of the kindest, most imaginative, creative, intelligent, warm effervescent people I've ever had the privilege of knowing. Uh, I had known him since I first moved to Georgia around age 9 or 10, so yeah, over 20 years. Uh, This is still pretty fresh, and I'm going to be processing it for a while. Uh, But for now, um, I'll just say that Trent was one of the most in-the-moment people I've ever known, and life is just not going to be the same without him. I just spoke to him like a week or two ago, 
for the first time in quite a while, and I'm glad that I at least got to do that. You can look on my social media for some videos and pictures and exchanges and stuff that I've posted of him uh, on my Twitter and whatnot. Um, one of the ways I'm coping with this is encouraging people to donate to Nucci Space, which is a suicide prevention mental health charity geared toward musicians. Uh, they're a practice space with gear that musicians pay to use, and we used to use it all the time when, back when we were, you know, some of us living in Athens and whatnot. And uh, we've done some benefit shows for them and stuff, and they're just great folks over there. Those proceeds go to various suicide prevention efforts. Um, they do things like offer free counseling sessions with licensed mental health professionals. They even do stuff like, you know, uh, my old music editor at Flagpole Magazine, I think, volunteers there sometimes. Uh, she's an entertainment lawyer now. But anyway, uh, Nucci Space, if you would, just go donate to them. And actually, I forgot to get the web address. Let me pull that up real quick. Okay, it's just Nucci.org, and that's spelled N-U-C-I.org. So just go give to them. I think probably I might uh, get with some people and do like a GoFundMe to, you know, actually have like a fundraising goal uh, to contribute to Nucci Space or some other kind of similar charity so but for now you know just go drop them a dollar five dollars whatever uh buy they have nucci space masks which you know everybody does now but you know you can uh buy those and yeah so nucci space any hoot if i sound a little less uh excited this time around on during this intro you, you know, have some idea why now I'm going to talk more about Trent. He really did have like a huge impact on my life. I would be a completely different person right now if it weren't for knowing him. I met him like very formative time in my life. He's one of the first close friends I had when I first moved to Georgia. There were times when I was younger that I definitely would have like called him my best friend. Uh, but, you know, we have a very closely knit friend group and everybody loved him. Everybody who met him loved him. He was just, just this ball of kinetic energy and love just a wonderful person um anyway yeah i'm gonna talk more about him try and figure out other ways i can honor his memory get my feelings out about this horrible horrible tragedy that has beset my very tightly knit intimate friend group um i love all you guys uh, but as i'm not gonna say your names because i know i'll leave somebody out because trent touched so many people's lives um but you all know who you are. I love you. But as I said, it's still pretty fresh, uh, so I'll probably be cutting some stuff out of this that I'm recording right now and trying to approach it with clearer eyes in the coming days. But yeah, it's been tough. Um, let's uh, let's do like a little palate cleanser, not to forget about Trent, but just to you know move on as I know he would want us to do. A big topic that my guest today, Ben Burgess, uh, this is part two of his interview. You should go back and listen to part one. Uh, it's called, uh, it's episode five, the last episode I dropped, Ben Burgess, ready for his close-up. A big topic he's focusing on at the moment happens to be one I've been thinking a lot about lately. In short, um, sort of giving a fuller picture of the left than what most normies and right-wingers seem to see in their mind's eye and Twitter feeds often. Mr. Burgess and I are in agreement that much of the discourse on the left is unproductive and a turnoff to outsiders. Um, I share his concern that the cancel culture stuff is not like helping our cause. 
Side note, the title of this episode is Clickbait. I mean, we do talk about Joe Rogan a little bit, mostly as a jumping off point for talking about bigger issues, but I figured an episode with his like name in the title would get more clicks. Sorry, but you know, got to do what you got to do. Oh, and I believe that political scientist slash professor slash writer slash great thinker Adolf Reed originated that phrase about how the left has become more concerned with whether or not people are going to heaven than actually improving the material conditions of working people. I think that's a cute, funny phrase there. So I'm talking about cancel culture and whatnot, obviously, uh, something I've never really been fond of because I believe in like charity and redemption, but also I don't talk about it that much uh, because I also hate the way that the right wing and like people like Sam Harris and whatnot and Joe Rogan often talk about cancel culture. I think they have kind of a misunderstanding of the dynamics that are going on there and like they kind of oversimplify it. So yeah, I I believe in charity and redemption. I'm not a religious man, but I guess some of those impulses I picked up from Christ's teachings, all the stuff about uh, being nice and generous and loving and charitable mostly, which are like the parts that a lot of prominent Christians seem to ignore for some reason, but I might not be a leftist if I hadn't learned those values so early on. So, dad, mom, the reason that I'm a, like, radical leftist now, it's y'all's fault for exposing me to Christ's teachings. He was, like, the most radical leftist there ever was. So, although I do think I have an overactive, uh empathy response disorder or something that's neither here nor there but hey parents if you're raising your kids in christianity and probably a lot of other religions but i of course can only speak to my own experience just know that they might end up learning leftist values and becoming radicalized because those are the values that jesus taught i should interview a pastor or something and talk about that stuff on here my my dream guest is cornell west brother cornell it's fun to say that you know that might never happen but he's you know he's a big famous man but god he's just an artist in his own right, just as an orator. And we we talk about him in this episode actually coming up. But uh, maybe I can get that pastor from Ebenezer Baptist Church, Raphael Warnock, who's running for Senate. I think I brought him up in the last episode. He's good and progressive and a preacher at Martin Luther King's church, which, you know, that would be amazing. Have him on. I'd love to help amplify his voice and, you know, help him get elected. Hey, y'all out there, anybody listening know of any, like, good activists or people running for office that I can have on the show. Election season is, you know, we're kind of ramping up now um, and kind of the final stretch of election season. So yeah, if you have any causes or just like, you know, ballot initiatives or something that you want me to like try and promote on the show, we're still pretty small here at Bridget, but you know, still would like to help in any way that I can. But anyway, uh, being nicer and more understanding and forgiving about certain things would not hurt the left. And in many ways, I think it would be helpful for getting new people on board and teaching them what we're really all about. It is, as as gross as it feels to say, a strategic sort of like public relations issue. But I also happen to believe in it. And I'm a proud leftist because I believe in the love, the compassion, the charity, the generosity, all that squishy stuff. <laughs> Hey folks, Haas from the future here to insert myself from my closet straight into your earballs. I am recording on my brand new Zoom recorder with two condensers, recording in stereo. Mm-mm-mm. 
which is awesome and I think sounds pretty good. I'm going to continue using my beloved Blue Encore to capture my voice's buttery bass tones, but this is going to be awesome for live streaming music, conversations, recording, real life podcasts. Uh, I feel like you're right there in the room with us. I just thought I'd test it out for this edition of Insertion Time. I am going to play a snippet of one of my dearly departed friend Trent's instrumental works here in just a second to lead into the interview, just a sort of demo that he sent me. I've been going through my correspondence with Trent and finding little videos he sent me and songs slash riff ideas that he sent, and he was just a fantastic, incredibly creative and talented guitar player, and I wanted to share some of that with all you sheetheads out there. Okay, so now back to the rest of the intro. I promise, it's almost over. Oh, and one more thing. I forgot to hit record until like 20 seconds into this interview, I had just asked Mr. Ben Burgess about Kamala Harris. The news of her vice presidential pick for Biden had just been announced that day, so I just asked him for some thoughts on that, and you didn't really miss much. Like, you'll be able to gather kind of what he said in the first 20-30 seconds, just by what he's saying there. So, anyway, bye. I love you. Okay. I am cutting myself off now. This second half of my chat with Ben Burgess is fantastic. Stick around for the whole thing and get some tips from a seasoned leftist brain genius who's read Marxist theory and whatnot and probably even understood much of it. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Haas underscore Bossman. Check out my YouTube channel, Haas Bossman, H-O-S-S-B-O-S-S-M-A-N. That's Twitter and Instagram at Haas H-O-S-S underscore B-O-S-S-M-A-N. Follow Ben Burgess at Ben Burgess, B-E-N-B-U-R-G-I-S on Twitter. His podcasts are Dead Pundit Society and Give Them an Argument. I highly recommend both. His currently out book is Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. And of course, wherever you are, uh, Trent swirling in the infinite cosmos, vibrating the quantum fabric of space-time with your chaotic energy that I and everyone who met you loved so, so much. You brought so much light into so many people's lives. This one's for you, buddy, and we're gonna, we're gonna pour one out for you. I love you with all of my soul. horse race terms like you know like it's it's probably a you know as smart a pick as as anyone he was likely to do you know i mean he's obviously not going to go in some totally different direction politically that wouldn't be biden um i mean kamala herself i mean obviously uh has a pretty vile record um most obviously in terms of mass incarceration you know and her well role first as da and then especially as attorney general in, in California, uh, when I guess she claimed that this was done without her knowledge, but you know, people working for her were like literally uh, arguing against like prisoner early release, you know, on, on the grounds that like, uh, you know, the, the loss of like the prison labor would be bad for revenue. You know, it's just like, you know, there's, there's just like evil okay. stuff like that in the, uh, in the record as 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 ag and and generally right like i said i believe in that case she claims that she didn't know they were going to argue that in court but uh but in but much more generally 
up until a year ago, year and a half ago, um, the fact that she was such a tough prosecutor was her primary selling point. That was her brand. And then uh, now that the winds have shifted in terms of people's feelings about mass incarceration, you know, she really downplays it. You know, she says she's a reformer. Uh, and this is pretty typical Harris. Uh, like she, in 2000 and, you know, 18, 19, you know, there was like, you know, there were maybe whole months where she was for Medicare for all. She was a co-sponsor to uh, Bernie's Medicare for all bill. Of course, she'd never expressed any interest in it before then, but like she was obviously gearing up to run for president and it seemed like the smart move. You know, there were like several centrists who were considering presidential runs who co-sponsored it. But then once she actually started running, she um, pivoted pretty much right away because she realized that trying to be Bernie light wasn't going to get her anywhere. So, you know, she should run in a more centrist lane uh, and started supporting, you know, a public option plan, which is a nice way of saying a uh, two-tiered healthcare system with one standard of care for poor people and one for the middle class. Um, and in general, right. I mean, she's, she's like just a pretty mediocre kind of, um, machine Democrats. So she's, you know, she's perfect for Biden. That's about what you'd expect. Yeah. Agreed on all that. I mean, um, she, uh, there, there is, there's always something a little bit about her that I kind of like just demeanor wise sure. and seeing her, I think it was in the Kavanaugh hearings. She was like, you know, going on the attack and that, that element, you know, the prosecutor thing, obviously like that is very problematic, but you know, but it's, but, it, but it's fun to watch her do her thing sometimes like in the, like in the first debate, like, I think you got a little sense of that, you know, like when she was going after Biden really hard, it was like, Oh wow, she must've been a really good prosecutor. Uh, like I, I can imagine her being very good in that context of, you know, making arguments in court. Uh, although it was also funny because like in like the second debate, you know, like she, she was kind of flat, like, and I, I, I don't know, if she was just having a particularly good day the first time, or if she actually made a calculation that, hey, uh, you're probably not going to, you're probably not going to win, uh, but you you might be well positioned to be VP. So like, you probably shouldn't go too hard <laughs> against anybody who might make you one. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, this kind of ties into, uh, I guess, will be kind of the next question that we actually had planned here um the uh what do you think of my girlfriend and i've been talking about this 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 morning the fact that um she or the fact that biden announced the identity uh, or that it was going to be a yeah. black woman beforehand i mean what do you think how do you think that's going to turn out as far as like i mean we know that how the right likes to talk about that kind of thing so what do you think of that yeah i mean I think it, well, look, I mean, the main thing I, I think about it is, is even though as far as this goes, it, it, it might work, you know, that, that Biden has a history of uh, putting his foot in his mouth on racial subjects, including extremely recently. And, um, and so, you know, the symbolism of having a black woman on the ticket, like might help shore up, you know, otherwise, you know, like some otherwise unenthusiastic voters, you know, so it's probably a smart move as far as that goes, but it's also, um, I'm not saying, you know, everybody, I'm sure lots of people know how to do a Google search to find out what her record was, you know, but like, but some people do respond to that. I mean, like there is a reason that politicians, you know, uh, 
pay attention to stuff like this. You know, they're not wrong that this is something that, you know, that like that kind of representational politics, you know, does have it, you know, like is something that, that, that does fire some people up. Uh, but I mean, I guess mostly what I think about it is just that it says everything about this moment that we're in where after, um, so, uh, you know, like after the murder of George Floyd and there was this like nationwide unrest about police violence and you'd really think that that would lead to some like really renewed movement for like specific reforms that might do something about police militarization and abuses. And there's been some of that, but mostly, unfortunately, what we've seen much more than we've seen any of that uh, has been a lot of fighting about symbolism, right? Like, um, so, so just, just, just for example, right? Like, Look, I'm I'm very much opposed to to having you know statues of you know Confederate supervillains in you know town squares, you know uh, that's uh, those those should absolutely go down. I'm all for that. Um, you know, there's I was at a like Zoom meeting for uh, DSA members in my little area in the like suburbs of northern you know, northern Atlanta, mm-hmm. and um, and somebody mentioned that there's a street sign in one of those places, Peachtree Corners, maybe, uh, that uh, that you know that's named after Nathan Bedford Forrest. It's like, all right, that's gross. Fair yeah. enough. Um, but it's also really interesting to look at the fact that after so many of like the really bad statues went down, there's also there's this initiative to start going after a bunch of kind of gray area statues. Uh, and in some cases, statues that aren't even really gray area, right? Like there was like a famous case where there was a um, there was an attempt to take down a statue of Abraham Lincoln on the grounds that you know he you know I mean he had lots of you know like he had lots of views that would not be at all progressive you know by uh, twenty twenty standards, right? But uh, but on the other hand, uh, if there's actually in terms of actions, if there's one American president that you really want to valorize, that would be it. Right, you know, uh, and um, you know there should be more statues of Lincoln, honestly. Uh, and um, you know, <laughs> uh, and maybe Sherman. We could put one of those up in Atlanta, but uh, uh, but um, that's you know that's a hot take. But that said, it's like really interesting uh, to see that, like, you know, again. Okay, all right, we've taken down the really bad statues. Now let's kind of look at the gray area statues and some statues that maybe aren't even gray areas. And, you know, what can we get the name of change? What can we, you know, like, what can we push? Um, you know, my, you know, my mother has gotten really into bird watching in her retirement. And she told me that there's a move to rename some like kind of obscure warbler that's named after a Confederate general. And it's like, I guess. But like, once you get down to the point that you're worried about stuff like that, it kind of seems telling, right? Like, why is it that, right? Not like some, not, you know, like, in other words, I'm not going to say symbolism doesn't matter at all. Nobody should care about symbolism, you know, but, uh, you know, whatever. We're a narrative species. We're going to care about symbolism. But this obsession with symbolism that like, even I remember a week or two ago, time all blurs together in quarantine when uh i was um 
they finally restarted NHL. And um, so, you know, my beloved Red Wings uh, did not make it, you know, they'd already been eliminated. So I was like, yeah, all right, I'll watch, I'll watch a Blackhawks game. And it was the, you know, Blackhawks playing the Oilers in Edmonton. Uh, and all right. So it's in Edmonton. This is a sport that like, you know, I think, I think we all know is like 99.999% white, right. you know, like, uh, there's, there's lots of diversity in which Eastern European country, you know, people come from, <laughs> but, uh, that's about it. Um, and you know, there's like a big black lives matter, you know, logo in it and, you know, okay, good. But like also really telling because what nobody is actually doing anything about is the police militarization and police violence that started the whole thing or the underlying social conditions, you know, that, that are behind that, right? Like the, the main reason that there are racial disparities in police violence is that there are racial disparities in poverty, um, which obviously goes back to slavery and Jim Crow and FHA redlining and all that stuff. But, you know, this kind of aggressive militarized policing is primarily something that happens in poor neighborhoods, uh, and, and black people are vastly more likely because of that history of, of de jure apartheid earlier as American history to live in those neighborhoods. So obviously it's, you know, obviously it's important to curb, you know, the police militarization itself, but like also, you know, the, the underlying thing, right? I mean, George Floyd was a laid off worker uh, who was choked to death for trying to pass a bad $20 bill. Uh, you know, like the, the underlying thing behind all of this is about poverty. And so rather than doing anything about police militarization or poverty, we're spending a lot of time worried about, you know, statues and warblers and which corporation can be pressured into making what PR gesture, you know, about how they feel about the movement. And the Kamala Harris pick is just the perfect embodiment of that because, you know, the symbolism is, oh, we're going to have a black woman who's going to be vice president. But of course, the substance is this is somebody who is like a villain on mass incarceration, you know, when she was a prosecutor and uh, attorney general in California. Yeah. Like on the, uh, so do you think that like symbolism, obviously, like you said, you know, symbolism does matter, but do you think that it sort of uh, creates like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a cover or a facade. Um, I remember like one of the first nonfiction political books I ever read when I was really young, which probably a good starter book was uh, Stupid White Men by Michael Moore. Oh, I read um, <laughs> uh, He, and I think, I'm pretty sure it was in that book that I was like introduced to this idea that we've sort of, uh, you know, it's great that saying the N-word, for example, is like considered one of the most taboo things you can do. But the fact that we have made it such a big deal and like it's the most important thing allows us to cover up the systemic issues and to like skate past actually like dealing with like material problems that the black community has. Yeah, for sure. Right. Like that, that the more, you know, not obviously that, that, that we shouldn't, you know, um, try to push back against interracial bias, but like also make it a big performative deal about that, you know, is, is a good way of, uh, is, is, is a good, is, is a good way of letting yourself off the hook for not doing anything about the underlying conditions, you know, and, and I think it's important to emphasize that even if like, you could like ask a magical genie to uh, eliminate all racial bias from the thoughts of all people tomorrow, 
as wonderful as that would be, the economic disparities between white people and black people wouldn't go anywhere, right? You know, because you need actual redistribution to do anything about that. Uh, and hence, the, the disparities in police violence would be certainly lowered by eliminating raci racial bias, but most of it would still be there because it reflects the unequal distribution of poverty. And, you know, that's a point that my uh, friend and editor Doug Lane made when I was talking about this. Even if you sort of go with this thought experiment, the racial bias will be back in six months because all societies that have impoverished underclasses end up telling themselves some sort of story, you know, about how, oh, it must be because they're lazy or something like that, mm -hmm. right? You know, that like, I think that's kind of a defense mechanism. So you're not too bothered by the disparity. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I think that the, I, I think that, I think that the stigmatization of any racially or religiously, ethnically, linguistically, you know, demarcated underclass, right, you know, as, as being, you know, um, you know, having some, you know, like, yeah, having some sort of stigma, you know, people thinking, you know, uh, people thinking explicitly or implicitly, you know, that they're somehow inferior. I think that's something you get in all societies, right? Like, I think that the solution, I, I'm not claiming this is sufficient, right? I'm, 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 I'm not making any sort of claim that, um, you know, that if we, if we had like a nice, like uh, socialist society where uh, all, uh, you know, um, everything was like nationalized or worker co-ops that like racism would disappear, you know, uh, but, but uh, I think if you really want to do anything about the level of social problem we have from the current level of stigma, it's not a sufficient solution, you know, but, but, uh, but certainly doing something about the economic conditions is a necessary condition for doing anything about that. Sure. Yeah. Well said. I mean, um, one of the questions that I think would be kind of fun, if there were like one thing that you could just snap your fingers and do like yeah. one policy to change that you think would maybe make the biggest impact, what would that be? So for me personally, it would be, I mean, there's so much, so many good sure, candidates sure. for that, but I think that like getting money out of politics would be, would take care of a whole lot of other problems. You know, I, I could be, I could change my mind on that, but that's the first one that comes to mind for me. Yeah. I mean, I think it would certainly help. Um, I do think that maybe as Americans we're inclined to overstate that because, uh, you know, because I think there are other countries where, you know, the campaign finance situation is, is way better, right? You know, where, where that, like they have really short elections, maybe there's even some public funding, you know, that uh, you, know, you don't have the kind of uncontrolled spending you have in the United States, where don't get me wrong, like the political situation is much better and maybe that does help make it better. But also it's not like that means that, um, that like wealthy business owners don't have massive amounts of political influence. Uh, you know, they just, I think it's just exercised in different ways, some of the same ways, some different ways, right? You know, um, and uh, and so I, I guess I would just say like, yes and, right? Like, yeah, of course uh -huh. we should do that. We should do that for sure, right? But like also I think we should be clear-eyed about the fact that as long as you have concentrated economic power, it's always going to find some way to, right. to concentrate political power. Yeah, I don't know if... Um end capitalism is like an acceptable answer to that question but you know yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's it seems like kind of cheating uh i think i don't know i mean i like what it looks like is is there like a one sentence policy thing uh i'm not sure about but like i think maybe like 
uh, winding down the, the overseas empire, like, I don't know, maybe like as a, as something that like gestures at what I'm talking about, at least that could like count as an answer for this game. You know, I think like abolish the CIA, something like that. Like, I think, I think just, and the, the reasoning is just that without going overboard and saying that like U.S. imperialism is the only reason for like bad political situations in lots of countries in the global South, it's obviously not. But if you look at the history, and I'm not just talking about like ancient, like John Foster Dulles, you know, kind of, you know, 1950s United Fruit Company history, but like really, if you look at even the history of like the 21st century, uh, as far as the way that even even pretty mildly reformist left-wing governments uh, in Latin America especially uh, tend to um, be very aggressively interfered with by the United States. I think that if, I, I, I think that, I think that if we could somehow a la carte do something about that, right, you know, I think that would go a long way as far as the world in general. Um, you know, I mean, you know, like God, you know, I mean, my, I mean, obviously the, you know, the, um, you know, the coup against, you know, Hugo Chavez in 2002, uh, you know, there was a, the, um, uh, they attempted uh, Juan Guaido, you know, coup against, you know, against Maduro like a year ago. Uh, the, um, you know, the removal of Zelaya in, uh, in Honduras, the, uh, uh, you know, my favorite example uh, is the removal of Aristide in Haiti in 2004. He was literally escorted out of the country by U.S. Marines. And the reason that's my favorite example, uh, and obviously we could throw in uh, the U.S. connections to, to the, the framing up of Lula and you know, Brazil and the sure. sort of soft coup against Dilma Rousseff. But the reason Haiti is my favorite example is because like, it really shows like, how little tolerance there is for this uh, by, by the United States. Uh, because when, it, when, when Aristide ran for president of Haiti the first time, his slogan was literally that he was going to raise the Haitian people from misery to poverty. Uh, and, and, you know, and then, well, there was an initial coup against him. You know, he was restored, you know, to power in the Clinton era. There's a lot of stuff that happened then. And it's like, the, and, you know, there were many ways that he had to, like, compromise and water down, you know, his initial proposals. But, like, the fact that the initial effort was so modest and it was met with what, what it is, is really a sign of, you know, how little breathing room there is there uh, to, to do anything, you know, to do anything about, um, you know, to have any kind of like social progress uh, in, in those countries. I mean, that's part of the reason why, you know, without saying that therefore it's good and we shouldn't criticize it. Right. But I mean, I think just as a factual statement, you know, it's, it's, it's part of the reason why, uh, you know, Cuba went the route that it did, right? You know, that, uh, that like, uh, you know, that Castro and Guevara and everybody saw what had happened in, in Guatemala where, where, where there was this coup and kind of reign of terror against the left-wing government. And they're like, well, I mean, look, we're not going to like let that happen to us, right? You know, so, you know, so, so that, that gave them a reason to, uh, you know, to go in a relatively more authoritarian direction, and again, like, you know, without saying anything about that normatively, you know, it's, it's certainly, I think if you're going to, I think if you're going to be real about the history, right, you know, like that has to, that has to go into the, the bad consequences of U.S. meddling in Latin America column. Um, and, you know, I mean, whatever, like we, we could 
keep talking. I mean, I know we just want to do 20 minutes or whatever. We could, we could easily keep talking about this, you know, for, for, you know, for hours. Uh, And there are, there are first world examples of, of what I'm talking about too. But, you know, that's why I've often thought that like, I don't know that we're going to make it to, um, you know, to socialism in the U S before, like, I think just for all sorts of cultural reasons, you know, I, th- I think, you know, I think we might have to have socialism everywhere, but the U S you know, before we have, you know, socialism in the U S. And so I think that the, you know, maybe that's too pessimistic. I don't know, you know, but like, it's, it's certainly a, a thought that, you know, that I've had many times. And, and if that's the case, right. Then um, what, you know, what we can at least do, right. Is to, uh, to redistribute, um, like, we can, in the short term, push for an aggressively social democratic agenda that can at least, um, you know, that can at least force some guns versus butter trade-offs that -hmm. could lead to a reduction in some of the stuff we're talking about, you know, which would give, like, a lot of other people in a lot of other countries room to breathe, and then, like, you know, who knows what could, you know, then, like, further down the line, you know, um, I mean, we're certainly, let's, let's put it this way, right, like, uh, we're certainly not going to be at the front of the line or even the middle of the line, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'd be very, very surprised um, if, if it, if it happened that way, but if we could at least, you know, but, it, but if we can at least have um, a successful push to, um, to, you know, to spend more money on social priorities in the United States and thus less money on, uh, on, on, you know, foreign meddling, then that would do a lot to at least like get some movement going at the front of the line. Right. Yeah. The, the imperialism answer I think is a really good one because it's a, you know, the, it's can be kind of difficult to justify why that's not the main issue to focus on mm-hmm. all the time because it's the one that, you know, causes the most death, arguably <laughs> the most death right. and suffering. Right. Um, it's the, you know, uh, and we, it's kind of like, the u.s as an entity our responsibility to the rest of the world like um as as citizens of this country to at least stop you know putting our shit on other countries and uh yeah and also i think like the the snap your fingers magic wand kind of thing is good <laughs> for that one because like that seems and you you seem to um suggest there that uh socialism or like implementing like a real you know something yeah. close to socialism at home would be the most difficult thing but the u.s military machine that one, you know, that that's that's got a lot of momentum, and that seems like it would be a pretty difficult one to uh, no, dismantle. Absolutely right. I mean, which is why, even though we were playing the like magically snap your fingers game, uh, I was still like kind of like, okay, well, how do we actually do that as a political program? And I think that's why it's like, all right, so tie it to like domestic priorities to get people to actually care about it, you know, because. Right. Uh, cause it, cause if not, like they're, they're not going to, right. Like that's not, mm-hmm. you know, most people, especially now, right. You know, most, most people don't have a family member, you know, who, who serves in the military, uh, the, and, um, you know, it's, it's like gotten down to the point where I think now it's like a, you know, it's like fairly concentrated, right. It's a fairly, you know, it's, it's a relatively small minority of the population that serves directly. Um, and of course, even when you do, um, that can lead people to draw into war conclusions. Their loved ones aren't sent into hard way, harm's way, but obviously, 
it can and usually does have the opposite effect, right? You know, realistically, um, in most circumstances, right? Like not not under all circumstances, but you know, under lots of, you know, if it's like World War One, and like you know, people have been dying left and right, fighting you know, fighting the Germans for years, and you know, the Bolsheviks say that if they come to power, they're gonna you know they're gonna you know, make peace with Germany, then, you know, then like, sure, under those circumstances, okay, my son can finally come home, you know, we'll give you a reason to support it. But, you know, under most circumstances, you know, people want to believe, uh, there's a pretty powerful incentive to believe that, you know, you're, you know, that, um, you know, that your son or nephew or niece or whatever, you know, is, 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 is fighting in a just cause. And, you know, um, and so, so that doesn't do it even when, even necessarily for people who do have family members in the service and most people don't. And especially when you start talking about the drone assassinations and stuff like that, right? I mean, like, that's something that we care about a lot, uh, but, uh, but that's like a very hard sell, right? Like, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the Obama years, you know, like haranguing my liberal friends about that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, it, it's a very, you know, I mean, that's like a real uphill battle, you know, to, to get people to, to, to see that as any kind of priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the, on the uh, subject of, I guess, uh, bringing more people in. Well, I do, yeah. I was, I was reminded of, uh, you know, when I was in, I remember when I was in high school and uh, we reached the age where um, people were able to start joining the military and there were like guys I had been in like punk rock bands with who were joining the military. And I was like, what the hell is this like, was this just like cosplay or LARPing or something to y'all? Even people who I thought kind of were like, you know, yeah, hardcore right. leftists with me were like, yeah, I guess I'll join the military now. And it's like, how could it, you know, change that, hold those two ideas in your head at once. And speaking of just like trying to make the left look appealing and bring more people into the left, Joe Rogan. Um, he's a good, uh, sort of, uh, fulcrum or anchor, you know, getting normal human persons, uh, to come over to the left or at least like entertain some of the ideas that we have over here. Now, I do think that like, um, to some degree, the, the protests, the BLM protests and stuff have done some work in that direction. Um, I know like uh, my, my girlfriend's parents who are, you know, they're basically like just, you know, liberals, they have uh, been more receptive to some of our more radical ideas that we will talk with them about since all that started. But you have one of the best, actually the best uh, critique slash defense of description of Joe Rogan and the phenomenon of, you know, people loving or hating him. And I was wondering if you could kind of like summarize your feelings on that. Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've listened to a decent amount of, of Rogan uh, that, you know, partially just, you know, same reason that lots of people do, you know, is he's like a very, um, you know, he's a very likable presenter and, and it's a very, um, you know, it's, it's a very listenable podcast, right? If, if I'm going to go, you know, if I'm going to go for a run, I'm, I'm not going to listen to, you know, to some podcast I might listen to where people are going to be talking about the labor theory of value, you know, while, uh-huh. you know, while I'm right. like, you know, sweaty and can barely think, you know, so, uh, so it's, it's very good for that. Um, but, you know, but I, I think that, 
you know, I'm sure that there are already going to be people who are listening or watching up to this point, you know, who, who, who want to like, you know, yell at the screen or whatever format they're taking this in with because, because they're going to say, but, but Joe Rogan is awful. He had like, you know, he had this or that or the other like horrible reactionary ghoul on his show and he nodded along with everything they said. And what about this comment that he made, you know, last year? And what about this thing that he said in this episode? And about which I would say, take a deep breath. I agree with you about all that, right? But I think you're thinking about it wrong. And we can talk in a minute about the reason why I think so many people are thinking about this wrong. But I think that the basic thing about Rogan is that, you know, obviously relative to a very specific, you know, demographic that he comes from and is speaking to, um, you know, that, that, you know, kind of like stoner jock, you know, whatever you want to, you know, whatever you want to say, right. You know, it's, 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 yeah. What, what is a word? They're not bros per se, but they're in that same sort of ballpark. As, yeah. Yeah. There, there's something that a lot of people would call bros, but I think that like says something about the limits of the word. Cause it's like, you can't, you can't use it to describe that and also use it to describe, you know, Republican frat boys, you know, it's, yes. it's, it's like, it's, that's, that's too expansive. Right. Exactly. Like, Joe Rogan reminds me a lot of like a lot of dudes I've been friends with over the years, right? Like, uh, Same here. Um, and in particular, one of the ways that he reminds me of them is that he's kind of all over the place politically. Uh, that like sometimes um, he, you know, he has, you know, like bad right wing impulses and, you know, whatever sort of people who are annoyed that I praised him earlier, right? You know, whatever, like, montage of clips you've got going in your head to prove that case it's like mm -hmm. granted right um but he also has some very left-wing impulses and frequently expressed those um you know just some some examples that come to mind uh there's uh there's an amazing uh clip uh where he's arguing with dave rubin about libertarianism uh and uh and like you know, he doesn't invite people on his show to fight with them almost ever, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, like, like if somebody's invited on, that means he basically likes you and he just kind of wants to chat, you know? But like, there's a point where like what Rogan was saying about how we don't need any of these government, you know, things got dumb enough that Rogan couldn't stand it and he had to like say something about it, right? Like, you know, like Rubin, well, actually very timely right now, you know, because the Trump administration is trying to destroy the Postal Service, you know, Ruben says, oh, what does government do right? Nothing. And Rogan's like, well, they do the post office pretty good. And, you know, they get into this whole argument about whether if we abolished or privatized the post office, whether UPS and, you know, Amazon and all that, you know, would, would, would be better or, you know, much worse, which is what Rogan was saying for all the right reasons that like, you know, that they wouldn't have any profit incentive to put, you know, mail centers in like rural areas and, you know, all that stuff, right? Or like there's a great, much more recent clip, right, from this year of him arguing with Dan Crenshaw about uh, Medicare for all, and, you know, and, and um, no. yeah, no, you should, you should check it out, right? Like it's very good. Or there's a really good one from, I don't know, maybe 2018, 19, you know, where he's uh, talking about the Trump administration's, you know, family, uh, family separation policy, and he's just ranting about how, you know, if, if you think it's okay to, you know, to, to take, you know, like, dab children out of their mother's arms you know then you're not on team human and do 
and 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 he goes off in this whole rant about that. He throws in at the end. He reiterates his support for Medicare for all. Right? You know, he he um, you know, he supported Bernie Sanders in the primary, uh, and uh, and in fact, right, the only um, you know like Sanders, Andrew Yang, and Tulsi Gabbard were the only candidates that were on his show. And trust me, it's not because nobody else wanted to be. It's it's the most popular podcast in the world by some measures, uh, you know, but like those were the only ones he liked enough to talk to. And he ended up, you know, saying, you know, supporting, you know, supported Sanders. Uh, but, and when people did, what he did, some people were like really mad about this because of, um, you know, because they, you know, because of cases where he said bad or stupid or reactionary things, which certainly exist. Uh, but again, to my, to my mind, that's missing the point in two ways, which first is that if you're actually serious about power, if you're not, what are we doing? Uh, then um, what you want is for people who you wouldn't necessarily expect to always line up with you to support you because you win if you have more people supporting you. Uh, that seems pretty straightforward. And then the other thing is, again, they just, I think the more fundamental mistake that people are making, and this goes to I think what you're really asking about, is that they assume that everybody in the world has like a well-defined ideological worldview. And really, the, almost nobody does, right? Like that's, that's, that's extremely rare. Um, that, you know, there are obviously, you know, almost nobody is an overstatement. There are, you know, there are lots of, you know, there are lots of people in the world who, you know, will, who are extremely loyal viewers of Sean Hannity slash Rachel Maddow, who have imbibed everything that Sean slash Rachel has to say and can, you know, you right. know, can repeat, repeat it all in command and, you know, whatever that certainly exists. But I think that, uh, and that's a, decent chunk of the population but it's not the majority right most people don't think about politics all the time right like mm -hmm. like that's that's probably the most everyman thing about joe rogan that like he doesn't you know he's interested in politics i'll have people on to talk about politics with him but he's at least as interested in mixed martial arts and psychedelics and half a dozen other subjects right. you know as as he is in politics and like most people who aren't like weird political obsessives like us you know, he, he doesn't really have, you know, what he has is some, a bunch of, he has political impulses, he has political reactions to things that happen, but like most people, he hasn't spent enough time thinking about it for those impulses to cohere together into some kind of consistent worldview. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, you know, and so, so yeah, like lots of times he says some stuff I totally agree with, you know, sometimes he says stuff I totally disagree with, but uh but I think that rather than focusing on the stuff that he gets wrong and being mad at him about it, which I think goes to the conversation we were having earlier about symbolism and how like there's this general cultural trend towards ever towards more people, more and more people, especially on the left, seeing politics primarily through the prism of this kind of moralistic evaluation of who's a good person, who's a bad person, mm -hmm. um, and, which is just massively unhelpful. And, and, and alienating, you know, to most people. Uh, but, you know, so, so they're obsessed with this question of like, is Joe Rogan going to heaven or not? Uh, and I think a better question is uh, how should we relate 
both to this show and more generally to the Joe Rogans of the world, right? The, the legions of people who aren't political obsessives, you know, who maybe even like have some bad cultural views that are floated around their heads. Cause you know, that's how that works, but who also are generally good hearted people who hear let's tax the rich and give everybody health care and say, Oh yeah, no, that's, that's a good idea, bro. We should do that. Right. Like, uh, and, and I think the way we should relate to those people is that we should be extremely nice to them and, 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 and try to, you know, find ways to speak to them, you know, in terms that they understand and uh, on the subjects on which he's good, which are actually a lot of subjects, yeah. right? Like, like on many, many, many subjects where he actually has like really good, solid, progressive, social democratic kinds of views. Uh, Joe Rogan is actually an extremely good political communicator, you know, because like in, for example, that Dan Crenshaw interview I mentioned, he doesn't do like, you know, he doesn't do what I would be, you know, tempted to do, uh, which is to like kind of, you know, be a little snarky about it and, and, and do, and, and like really like go after Crenshaw and, you know, try to expose like the inconsistencies and stuff, which, you know, whatever, there's definitely a place for that. Uh, But instead, right. You know, he has this very like grounded kind of, common sense like yeah dude I, I i don't know that doesn't really make sense to me what about right you know right and and, and, and it's just and, and that's something that's going to be more appealing to more people right mm-hmm. you know like than than even what i was describing never mind what a lot of leftists would do which is that they would just like yell at him about how he was a horrible person for thinking that right uh, which which has you know maybe you know, maybe gets a go off King sort of reaction from people who already agree with you, but that's all it does. Yeah. No, I actually just yesterday, um, sent, you know, his recent thing with, uh, Ben Shapiro, I, um, commented somebody on, you know, somebody I knew from Facebook who's, you know, good dude. Um, he just, he posted something about, um, you know, people of color having a victim mentality and I, and, you know, that's what's responsible for their, you know, material conditions. And so um, I just uh, posted in response that uh, clip of Rogan talking to Ben Shapiro, where he, they were discussing that, that very thing about like, you know, how the historical precedent is what causes those conditions. And um, I think that was probably the most effective tool I could have possibly had in that moment. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, because, you know, because Rogan, um, you know, is, is not by any means a dumb guy, but he is like, but you know, but he's, he's not somebody who is going to go at that, you know, from, you know, from a perspective that like assumes a bunch of shit that most people, you know, who, who are hearing it, like don't necessarily know about or aren't necessarily on board with, you know, right. uh, like, like it's going to be, you know, it's, it's, you know, he's somebody who's, who's going to, like relate on a level that's going to make sense to even a lot of people who might otherwise not along with Shapiro uh, and, and say, uh, and, but who, and, and it's just, he's so obviously going to be coming from a place of, I actually care about this underlying thing because like I care about helping people and I think you're really like making a mistake about this. And I'm going to explain why rather than from a place of, um, 
you're my enemy and I'm going to score some points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Important to remind people, and Joe Rogan is really good at that, that, you know, leftism is the reason that we want equality is because we care about people and have compassion and empathy for them. And I think most people feel the same way. Um, they just maybe we don't put that on front street as much as we should. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like um, I, I think there are a lot of ways that, you know, even though the underlying impulse is that, you know, that you want like a fair, more decent, more equal society. I mean, if you didn't, why would you bother with any of this? You know, they're, they're, but like just because of some of the way that the culture war works and, you know, lots of other stuff, you know, we, we, often have a tendency to translate that into um, I'm going to like, I, you know, I'm going to try to prove something by like really showing like what a piece of shit this guy I'm talking to is, mm. uh, which is, you know, is something that like, I'm not even saying like, don't ever talk that way. I'm sure anybody who wants to accuse me of hypocrisy on this point can also assemble a montage of clips to prove that. Right. You know, but uh, uh, you know, the, the point is, the point is not like, you know, I'm better than you do exactly what I do. The, the point is that like, it's something for all of us, us, you know, uh, first person, you know, to, uh, to think about, right. That, uh, that like, if we seem to be coming from a place of moral condemnation of individuals most people are going to have a very bad reaction to that or if we seem if we seem to be coming from a place of like i'm gonna win one for my team right you know like like i think most people can pick up on that whereas if we front load the actual thing that we do all care about underneath it all right you know and like we really find ways to like express that clearly that like no no i'm I'm coming from a place of you know i i want to you know i want to create a society where where people would be better off than they are right now i want to you know i want to do something you know about the actual social problem itself and so maybe because you don't see the need of that i'm going to try to like you know i i'm going to i'm going to try to express it in a way that you or the people in your audience maybe you know who who can come around you know like like what will make sense to them you know the more that we can communicate that way right the the better off we'll be right like so well actually like one last rogan example like the um you know i think like one of my favorite rogan episodes uh, was the one he did last year with uh, last year yeah with uh cornell west oh that's uh, great and, you know, and, it, and it's great, you know, because like you can also see, you know, like West is, you know, like, yeah, I mean, Rogan's already like very amenable to some things and whatever, but like, you know, but it's like obviously Cornell West, you know, does have a very like coherent, well-defined worldview. And, you know, and it's certainly, you know, he's certainly to Rogan's left. And you could tell as you listen to that conversation that like, you know, and whatever, even relative to the fact that Rogan does have a certain tendency to like not along with guests, right? You know, like that's 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 part of what makes him so likable. That you know, right. that like <laughs> you know, he tends to yes and everything. But um, but you can also tell, like, if you listen to a lot of Rogan interviews, that like West is somebody who like really impressed him, and like really like you know, like this is something that like, and he was like you know, and and he was having a lot of impact on on him. 
Uh, and, and I think that makes sense because West is somebody who is very good at, uh, at speaking from, you know, from, from that place. Right. You know, that like, I think um, like the worst thing that, that like, I mean, the worst thing Cornell West is ever going to say about an individual is like, I remember when he was interviewed on the Michael Brooks show, you know, he was like, yeah, these right-wing brothers, you know, God bless them. You know, they, they don't have good arguments, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's like about as harsh as it's going to get from West when he's, you know, when he's, he's talking about, you know, evaluation of individuals as opposed to, to, to the ideas themselves or, you know, systems of domination. Cornell West is, uh, by the way, dream guest, dream just person to meet. You know, he is just, I mean, uh, have you ever met him by chance? I have not, no. Um, yeah, but, but I, I agreed, right? Like that was, uh, actually, I was really happy that, that, uh, that, that Michael did, you know, before, you know, uh, before mm-hmm. he passed, you know, like, because that was not that long before then. Oh, uh, right. that he had, um, yeah, he was going to some event at uh, Yale, I want to say, I don't know, one of those places, right. You know, and, uh, and, and he got to speak, you know, he got to speak on a panel with West and West then came on the show afterwards. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, I know that was huge for him. I think that, and, um, like, like, I think in terms of like, you know, getting to like meet people in person who meant something a lot to him. I think like that and like the Lula interview were probably the two big ones for him. Right. Yeah. Um, he, uh, so I'm mindful of your time. Uh, so I'll uh, kind of cut off what I was going to say there and uh, move on to the last question. I guess this ties in really well. So, um, you know, Cornell West is sort of a, an artist in his own way. Um, mm-hmm. There's certainly a um, a beauty to the way that he, you know, orates. Oh yeah. So yeah, that was. Um, I guess that's kind of the most important thing because you know I am an artist. Like i yeah. I'm a teacher, and you know, like I've been English and ESL teacher and stuff like that. Um, but you know, primarily my main thing has always been you know playing music, writing stories and poetry and stuff. So um, I and you know, so I think. I, I would like for, I'd like to think that art can be a powerful leg of the, you know, of any political movement, but especially the leftist movement, because it is so much about leftist ideas have been uh, shoved aside for so long that I think it requires a lot of imagination and obviously empathy. And these are things that art is supposed to help cultivate. Uh, so, um, um, but yeah, what kind of role would you see um, art playing in the movement? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I, I guess the two things that, that I think there is that there, there is obviously a role for like directly and explicitly political art. Um, you know, I mean, just whatever, like obvious stuff that, that comes to mind, you know, um, are all like all of the like all the Irish songs about like resisting British imperialism that, you know, that like are, are uh, obviously, you know, very important to, to, to the Irish Republican movement, you know, uh, his, his historically that, that, that music has, 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 you know, meant a lot there. And, you know, I mean, whatever, like I, you know, as, as somebody with relatively little connection to it, right. Like I enjoy drinking whiskey and listening to that stuff, you know, uh-huh. but uh, uh 
and or you know in a more grounded way right like or get a more a more i guess i should say close to home way right i mean like i think it's it's undeniable that you know that um um you know like you know to go back to uh to go back to one of the very first things we talked about in the first half of the interview uh you know that that uh that punk you know like if nothing else like helped a lot of people like mentally survive the rigged years and that's not nothing mm-hmm. you know like that's that's a that's a service uh, right um so so I, I think there definitely is a role for that uh for uh you know like and, and certainly again there's a reason that things like the irish republican movement or the like you know, early American labor movement, you know, that there, there was so much like inspirational music that, that went with that. Um, and, and as there's definitely a, there's definitely a role, you know, a role for that. And, and if you, or, and, you know, for, for comedians, certainly who, uh, who are going to talk like, um, like Dave Chappelle, right? Like the, the thing that he put out after the George Floyd protest started, it was just like a mini special. It was called 846. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, that was really good. It was like really compelling, you know. Um, like I'm, I'm glad. Like, yeah, I, I thought that was like a really good, really compelling thing, you know. Uh, so, so there's definitely a role for that. Um, but I guess it's a little bit like, well, okay. So, so the two things I was going to say were one. Uh, I mean, I don't. I I would also be very sad to live in a world where, like artists felt like they had to be making like super political stuff all the time to like do their part or whatever, you know, cause like part of what we like, look, not everything has to, uh, has to serve the cause because then what's the cause, right? Like the, uh, the, the, the cause is having a world where people are living under better conditions and, and, and they're better able to enjoy everything that's good about life. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and art, I think to me mostly falls, you know, like, it's like philosophy for that matter, right? Like, I, you know, like, I think the kind of like, certainly analytic philosophy tradition I come out of, you know, some of that, you know, like the G.A. Cohen analytic Marxist stuff, like is politically useful, lots of it isn't. And that's perfectly okay, right? Like, I think like getting to think hard about basic questions about knowledge and reality is like a valuable human activity. And I want a society where more people have more time to think about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and similarly, I, I want people to to have more, you know, time and energy to to create, you know, and 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 consume art like uh, like that George, the Joe Rogan Cornell West interview that I was talking about. Like one of part of the like really special talent that West has is that he's able to bring this kind of intensity to making just about anything that he's talking about really compelling. Like after I listened to that interview, I started reading some Anton Chekhov short stories I'd never read before because. Like there's a point early in the interview when 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 West starts talking about Chekhov to Rogan, he's so intense about it. It was like really, you know, it's like, have you read the stories of Anton Chekhov? You haven't lived until you've read Anton Chekhov. And it was like, wow, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna check some of that out, you know. But uh, uh, so so I I think that so and and I think that that's an important thing to to front load here because we, you know, because I think it's a real mistake in a couple of directions. Like, I think the same way that we want, that I think the, like, the right attitude that you should take to, to Rogan is like, roll your eyes when he says something dumb, but don't make too big a deal about it, right? And like, and, and, and like 
when he says something that's like useful, like the clip you're talking about, you know, like shout it from the rooftops. Uh, like, I think, I think that's the smartest play there. I think similarly, um, you know, when, when somebody does make a piece of art that's politically useful, great, fantastic, right? Like, you know, like, like, like play it at all your rallies, right? You know, that's, uh, but then like, but also don't start primarily judging art by its political usefulness, because I think that gets really dumb in a couple of different directions. Um, one of it is that it can, you know, I mean, it can just lead to being like a Stalinist weirdo about it, you know? Right. And, <laughs> and two, the the flip side of that, that that's more often a, a problem in contemporary American culture is that we get a little, we get our wires crossed a little bit about what the primary role of these things is in a way that leads to like valorizing these things in a way that doesn't necessarily make sense, right? Like something I think about a lot of this connection is back in 2008, 10, wherever that was, right? When uh, 12, I don't know. <laughs> One of those times was a long time ago. Right. <laughs> uh, when, uh, John Stewart did that rally to restore sanity in uh, Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. And the thing itself I found very annoying for all kinds of probably predictable lefty reasons, but like mm -hmm. also like, um, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of false equivalency going on there and, you know, whatever. But like, um, but also like more importantly, what, why is anybody traveling to Washington, D.C. to like, go to a political march because a comedian told them to, right? Like there's something very weird about that. Yeah, it's um, the getting like actual information from like music or comedians is maybe not the best idea. Um, that was, you know, like the last uh, episode where I did some, some recommendations for uh, lefty stuff. Um, you know, I talked about one of my favorite bands, Propagandi. And mm -hmm. um, I think that really they became a better band when their songwriting sort of matured out of writing I think as their singer put it you know I used to write songs about the Cointel Pro papers and <laughs> like I would you know just be very specific and you know they evolved into I think a much you know much better artists when they're still extraordinarily political like almost 100% yeah. of their songs are but they um it's a lot more poetic now, I guess. And, you know, connections to personal things and, um, you know, not can, can be applied to more than just the specific issue that, you know, the song. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, right. I mean, I've, well, okay. Look to, um, uh, come up with a, you know, to use a contemporary example, um, David Rovix, who I assume is, is still working, right? It's been a while, long time since, mm -hmm. since I saw any of his music. But, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but he has, but I, I think he's somebody who's, who's very hit and miss. And sometimes it's really good, and sometimes not, you know? And like, so, so like, like, I'll just, you know, not to be too much of a hater about this, my only example will be one of the ones I think is good, you know, <laughs> which is, uh, <laughs> uh, He's got this great song called uh, St. Patrick's, uh, St. Patrick's Battalion, St. Patrick's Brigade, one of those, uh, which is about, which is like this like old timey folk song that he wrote, I think, right? He certainly performed, I think he wrote it um, by, um, yeah, I want to say St. Patrick's Brigade, about the, uh, these Irish immigrants during the, uh, the Mexican War who, you know, like basically right off the boat, right? You know, were like sent into the army and then um and then they kind of realized that 
oh hey we're on the wrong side here that like the u.s is acting in mexico just like you know the british acted in ireland and uh and and they like mass defected into the mexican army like this is like a very like obscure historical incident you know but it's like this 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 awesome song about that you know i love that right but then like he also made a lot of songs at least during the bush years you know maybe maybe he's, he's gotten better about this that like kind of felt like he was trying to wedge an a op-ed column into song lyrics uh yeah, yeah. That's one of the big, I think, people's big complaints about political music in, in general. It's kind of hard to sell people on political music because that's what they're expecting a lot of times. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, like there's a reason why, well, look, to, you know, probably, I mean, the fact this might go to probably says something about all of the, um, you know, how much of my musical tastes are, are like revolve around like, goofy overplayed boomer music i like but uh the, uh but um but like something like you know black sabbaths war pigs you know is like something that like you can still like it still has resonance you can listen mm -hmm. to it now and it still has resonance uh whereas like about a thousand songs that were made about the iraq war are just like embarrassing to listen to now right you know like not you know like I think like the only the only person who really comes like comes to mind, you know, like most of it sounds like, you know, the Green Day album at best. Uh and uh and, yeah, and American and the, Idiot. Yeah. And the at worst worse gets a lot worse, right? Like the only the only really good song that I can think of off the top of my head about the Iraq war is uh, Tom Waits' uh, Hell Broke Loose. Mm. Uh you know, and the reason for that there's a reason for that. Right, which is that the song tells a story about this, um, um, you know, like it's 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 just this like the song is the story of the soldier who uh, you know came back from the war with like you know hearing problems and PTSD and you know like it's but it's it's this like but it's like this intensely felt personal story which is actually like a good format for a song, uh, whereas like so much of the Bush era stuff it's like instead of doing like you know war pigs or uh or you know uh any number of uh oh fuck what's the uh it's that classic song like the you know early 20, you know this like the old about world war one uh, christmas in the trenches you know things mm -hmm. like this that like have the staying power because they're about like um things that are going to have resonance with people as long as like war is something that right. happens and we think about um whereas so much of the bush era stuff is like really an attempt to kind of like litigate the partisan narratives of the moment which mm -hmm. means that it's like not very good even when it comes out and like 10 years later it's completely dated yes yeah um yeah, i just realized i'm wearing an anti-flag shirt and that, <laughs> i would say the same thing for anti-flag that they're they're at their best when they're you know uh, speaking about more about broader issues although they do have a song i think from their 99 album a new kind of army that is about uh two specific police brutality stories but yeah. you know it is just as sadly just as relevant today as it was then but yeah um, no and, and i also think that like i think that's probably gonna be okay because i think that if you have like i think you could like write a song about you know i don't know rodney king that would still have resonance now or you could mm -hmm. you know write a song about george floyd that would still 
unfortunately probably have residents in 20 years, you know, and, um, you know, because, uh, or, you know, I mean, whatever, not that like people only care, you know, not that like people only respond emotionally to music that's, you know, that's about something still an ongoing issue, but you know, that, that does unfortunately help, you know, but, um, uh, but I think because the reason that you could though, is if what you're narrating is like, this specific horrible thing that happened to a specific human being, you know, that's, that's going to have emotional resonance that it's not going to have. If you're like, I don't know, like, you know, I, I don't know what the police brutality equivalent would be of this. Right. You know, but it's like, you know, but it's like the, like, like the Bush Iraq equivalent would be like, you're writing a song about scooter Libby or something. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would like, um, it's I guess it is a fine line between like you know if you like you can speak about specifics I mean one of my favorite bad religion songs is uh, about uh, the Kyoto protocol but it's you know it's called Kyoto now and it just like and I mean I think that that song like is it it illustrates its point in a way that you know you can sort of apply it to many different situations and uh, many different like you know similar sort of things that were you know issues were dragging our feet on where, where the cringe really comes in is when it's something like you said the like talking about scooter libby or you know somebody's name that nobody's going to remember in 20 years exactly like i think that if you i think that if you either do like well actually that those two those two songs i just mentioned i think are good illustrations right like if you if you either do the war pigs route of just having lyrics about like uh, death and destruction and politicians sending poor people to die that like could equally well be written about the Iraq war or world war one or whatever, some story that's specific enough that it's not, it doesn't feel like you're, trying to make a political argument in a song lyric it feels like you're you're telling a story about a human being exactly yeah that's what i was just kind of like searching for there yeah the human connection if you can make that um Yeah. yeah and that i mean i think that really speaks well to um what uh and that was like more than I was hoping for with uh, your answer to that. Cause like that's, I think speaks well to what makes how politics can inform art to make the art good uh, as opposed to like, is art useful as a political tool, which um, you know, just from personal experience, like I told you, I think last, the first half of the interview that um, you know, that's, that's what got me into politics in the first place was, you know, the bands that I loved were, leftist and you know anti-war mostly um do you have any experience with like um a a piece of art that yeah i mean look i I think there i think there probably are you know um like like okay like like jonathan franzen's novel freedom is like a book that i like a lot but there's some like there's some stuff that's like very much like bush era politics the moment in it you know with uh that like i think I read as ah, this is fine. It's like a little too obvious, you know, but he's like, you know, it's like a little, it's a, it's a little bit too obvious. Like you could hear him a little bit too much being like when he wrote those like scenes being like, see motherfuckers, do you see now? Right. You know, like uh, yeah. it, it doesn't really work that well. Right. Whereas uh, something like there's a, there's a William Gibson novel. It's like not one of the classic cyberpunk ones, but it's like one of these like, 
here and now ones that he wrote like within the last like 15 years um i know it's like leftist novels go or at least like cap uh critiques of capitalism a big one for me was uh the dispossessed uh, ursula, oh, ursula yeah 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 love that one. Oh, pattern recognition that's what it was called um and and you know i mean i don't you know and that's a nice so i don't know if he would think of that as an anti-capitalist novel or not like you can certainly read it that way right because there's a lot of stuff i think that's very inspired in there by like that Naomi Klein book about brands. And, um, but like the thing that like sticks in my mind for that, is it even so much like the main stuff that the novel is about, but like some of the details and like the scenes that are said in Russia about like, like the extreme, like post-Soviet, like economic inequality and, and social breakdown, you know, it's like not something a new character is talking about you know, but just like the way it's like kind of illustrated in those scenes, like I think probably God, you know, I mean, I probably probably read that book like, you know, 15 years ago, right? You know, but it's like, that's that one, you know, like that one's, that one definitely like lingers in my head in ways that like some of the things that are much more obviously like, hey, I'm going to like have a character who's, who's going to like, you know, like do the like, slimy republican talking points you're gonna see how bad they are really doesn't uh yeah isn't um i've never read an ayn rand novel but i think there is like one of them uh where the main character gives like a speech that's like 50 pages long or something like that uh yeah yes uh alice shrugged i think i think that's the galt speech at the uh, at the end but yeah 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 right like and it's so yeah like in so many ways those books are like you know are just the exact like I don't know. It's just kind of funny. It's like she left the Soviet Union and it's like, all right, well, you know, I disagree with all the political substance, but like, I really want to write like, a, you know, like the format of like a socialist realist novel that like mm. would make my censors proud, you know, <laughs> like, I just, I just want to rewrite the pro-capitalist version of that. Interesting. Yeah. I've, uh, haven't thought of it that way, but, um, yeah, she, she definitely has the, um, whenever they like get somebody from who used to live in Venezuela to speak on Fox news or whatever, the, you know, just a great mouthpiece for the uh, anti-socialist or anti-left viewpoint. Right. She was kind of the OG on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, like I said before, uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Like, is there anything else you want to add on anything that we've talked about here today or maybe put a pin in, uh, some of the, you know, last stuff we were talking about, you know, maybe come back to it a little later. Yeah, let's do that for sure. Okay. Awesome. Um, now where can people find you, Mr. Ben Burgess, uh, Twitter and all that stuff at Ben Burgess, uh, on, on Twitter. So it's uh, B U R G I S. Uh, you mentioned, uh, dead pundit society earlier. I think that's at dead pundits on Twitter or whatever, just like go into your podcast feed and look up dead pundit society. Definitely check Uh, that out. And there actually is is also just just very very recently uh, there's there's a new um, there's a solo podcast um, so Dead Pundit Society I co-host with uh, Adam Proctor and Brianna Last mm. uh, but uh, but I also just started a solo show called Give Them an Argument right same same name as the book uh, that so episode one just 
well, at least as, as we're recording this conversation, just hit iTunes like yesterday mm-hmm. uh, and uh, talked to Matt Leck and Harvey JK and Bhaskar Sankara and Liza Featherstone on that one, um, you know, but tried to keep those relatively short. It's a much shorter episode than that lineup probably makes it sound like. Mm-hmm. And then coming up for, uh, for the, the next one, uh, talking to uh, David Griscom from the Michael Brooks Show, uh, Lee Phillips, who's the co-author of a really good book uh, book on socialist economics called People's Republic of Walmart, uh, and uh, uh, Anna Kasparian from the Young Turks, and also just to prove that this this show is not going to purely be an exercise in me talking to people I agree with, Dave Smith, who's a libertarian podcaster and comedian I've debated in the past, is also going to come on that um, that that second episode, um, and the... Um, and yeah, so, so very excited about that. Check that out. Uh, either, again... You know, you can you can do that on any of the places. You know, you you normally get podcasts, or you, or you can watch it on YouTube, the uh, uh, the video version, uh, or uh, or to get early access, go over to uh, Patreon.com/slash Ben Burgess. And yeah, uh, read me and Jacobin just about every week, and uh, that is the stuff that comes to mind. Awesome. Um, have not gotten around to listening to that new podcast yet, but. And I'm real excited. To, I'm always excited when Matt Leck shows up on anything. Uh, he is hilarious and uh, very, very intelligent. I, his, uh, have you heard uh, Literary Hangover, his podcast? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, great for, uh, you know, us uh, literary nerds and, you know, marries that with some leftism too. So it's beautiful. Um, hopefully we'll be speaking with you again soon, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you a message. And, uh, I'll, I'll like tag you on Twitter when this episode goes up and cool if we put it up on youtube and the podcast feed sounds good all right awesome have a wonderful day ben burgess thank you sir thanks kevin And that's going to do it for Breadsheet today. Thank you so much to my guest, Ben Burgess. I feel very smart and useful for putting your brain thoughts into the world. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Haas underscore Bossman. Check out my YouTube channel, Haas Bossman. And Ben Burgess at Ben Burgess. That's B-U-R-G-I-S on Twitter, not Burgess. Dead Pundit Society. Give Them an Argument. Two podcasts. And uh, Give Them an Argument. Logic for the Left is his book. It is fantastic. Highly recommend you read it. It's like short and a very fun read. Very well written. Check that out. Check his podcasts out. Follow him on Twitter to see when he like writes stuff up in Jacobin and whatnot. We are writing out today on a song my friend Jake requested who he was very close with Trent as well Trent my good friend who passed was a great musician but he didn't sing really do like a singer songwritery kind of thing so what mostly survives him in that realm are lead guitar parts he did on other people's songs and also some instrumental stuff that he did the instrumental transitional music or bumper music I played before was Trent's and this is an old song that Jake actually wrote and Trent played lead guitar on it's Garth Rivers singing lead, and there's other people. Anyway, this is about Trent. I love you, Trent. Everybody, please contribute to Nucci Space. That's uh, Nucci.org, N-U-C-I.org. Give them a dollar, give them $5, give them $100. Um, they do great work. And, uh, yeah, I think that's going to about do it. Uh, for all the other stuff, just, uh, you know, 
look at the episode description. I always paste links to all my social media and try to like you know put relevant videos and articles and stuff like that in the show notes. Um, if I left anything out, let me know. Uh, I love you guys. I'll be back with a another mini sode with Haas recommends and all that good stuff very soon. Please be good to each other. Be kind to each other. Uh, talk to your friends uh, who you haven't spoke to in a while. And make sure that your friends know that you love them. And make sure that you radiate positive love, healing, light, energy from your soul as you go about life in this crazy, mixed up, weird, beautiful, and ugly universe of ours. Love you all. Bye. It's a bridge.